Hello, this is a ghost stories <laughs> with Gabby and Kim. I should talk in this voice always. 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 <laughs> but anyway, welcome to our podcast. It is called A Ghost Stories, not because we have a speech impediment, but because <laughs> a ghost stands for Advanced Ghost Hunters of Seattle Tacoma, which is a group that both of us are in. Uh And it's pretty cool. We get to investigate certain parts of Seattle and places outside of Seattle. But we have experiences to share with you. So tune in to each episode for a bit of history on the space and location, starting with our home of Spooked in Seattle. And it's here that we begin our tales, tales of firsthand experiences that bring us back again and again to share our evidence with you. So today, we're talking about the intro to history and haunts with the curse of Pioneer Square. That makes it sound like a Scooby-Doo episode. I mean, it kind of is. (laughs) The curse of Pioneer Square. Is it going to turn out that it's some kind of like villain pretending to be a ghost all along? I mean, it might just be a homeless dude in a van because that's more likely in Pioneer Square these days. Yeah. Yeah. I wish I was kidding. I know. (laughs) But anywho. But anywho. We could go on forever. But we wanted to share some information with you guys. So for anyone who doesn't know this, Seattle is pretty spooky. It is pretty spooky. It's been around. It's not the oldest city in the U.S. It's one of the newer ones, Uh I want to think. Comparatively speaking, yeah. Yeah. And it's, but it does have a lot of history. Yes. And we want to share some of it with you. So we're not going to share all the deets because you'll fall asleep. Um, and we also want to make sure that you actually get a chance to check out Spooked in Seattle Uh um, in Pioneer Square and we actually offer tours. Kim is actually a tour guide. I am. You want to talk about the tours, what you guys do for Sure. Uh, So Spooked in Seattle, uh, we are a tour company that operates out of Pioneer Square at 102 Cherry Street, which is also a ghost's headquarters. Uh, Both were founded by Ross Allison, who is a very well-known and respected paranormal investigator, uh, has been doing this for over 30 years now. So we give tours, family-friendly tours, on the paranormal and the haunted history of the Pioneer Square area. We give haunted pub tours, which goes a little bit more into the racy sides. The racy history, because a lot of people don't realize, but Seattle is a city that was built on vice. We have an extremely filthy Filthy, dirty history full of drugs and sex and booze and, and shit geysers. And shit geysers. Which we'll get to in a minute. Which we'll be getting to. Uh, we also do true crime tours. Uh, so you can learn about some of our famous, because we also breed a lot of serial killers. Uh, but uh, looking a little bit, what you were saying about. Uh, 
how young we are mm -hmm. as a city. We are. Um, even though a lot of other cities, particularly on the East Coast, have been around for, I mean, in some cases, hundreds of years longer, at least in terms of when white people settled. Right. Uh, we, I think, are in a really unique position to still house one of the most haunted cities in the country. Absolutely. Yeah. There's so much death upon death that people don't know about and yeah. don't realize. So we wanted to kind of go into more detail and tell you a bit about like where that history came from mm -hmm. and how it relates to Spooked in Seattle because Spooked in Seattle literally is in the heart of Pioneer Square, yeah. which is what we're going to get into. So Ken, tell me, tell me about this. Pioneer Square. About Pioneer Square. Well, Pioneer Square was not actually the first place that the settlers stopped. Oh, it wasn't. It was not. Even though we are still considered the original neighborhood of Seattle, uh, the very first place was a place called Alki Point over in West Seattle. And that was when the Denny Party uh, showed up in 1851 saying, we're going to claim this land in the name of our people. And then weather happened. And then weather happens. <laughs> yeah. Seattle is also fairly notorious for its not so awesome <clears throat> weather. Although, I don't know if we want to let people in on this, that our weather is, is uh, not quite as, as awful as we often let people believe. No, it's beautiful outside right now. It is. It's gorgeous outside. But uh, this particular area that they sort of settled into was a spot that had no protection from the wind. So once the winter hit, they were like, what? There's rain, there's all this wind, it's freaking cold. And so uh, part of them decided, you know what? This is not what we were looking for. And so they sailed across the water and landed in Pioneer Square. And at the time, this was before we built our city up, before we, you know, progress happens or progress, quote unquote. Right. Uh, there was a little bit of a natural barrier to the wind. So this seemed like an ideal spot. However, the original settlers, they didn't have a great judge of what made a great area to settle because the exact spot they settled in, what they didn't take into account was the tide. Tides come in, tides go out. So it was constantly flooding. And the bigger issue was that our sewage pipes... Uh-oh. Yeah, our sewage pipes all led into the water, which seems like a great idea. You don't want, you know, all this muck in your city, right? Right, right. But when pipes go directly into the water and the tide is coming in and out and in and out, as soon as the tide came in, it meant all of that shit and seawater was coming right back through the pipes. So a regular occurrence happening in Pioneer Square were these... Shit geysers. Surprise! Oops! The world's most unfortunate bidet. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah, right? Rough. Uh, and they could be, I mean, you know, eight feet tall, ten feet tall, these humongous geysers of shit and seawater just coming through. But nobody was like, you know what? We should change this? <laughs> I mean. So this was something that was regularly happening for Decades, decades, they were putting up with this. They were putting up the constant flooding, regularly just walking through muck and, yeah, just wading through water. And I, that's something that always kind of baffles me. Like, I suppose part of it is that there weren't a whole lot of ladies in the settlement at this point. 
I mean, I know I would not have put up with that for a very long mm. period of time. No, and most of the ladies that were in the settlement uh, were putting up with other things. Uh-oh. Ayo, pun intended. Pun intended. Uh, so, Seattle was founded, actually, as a logging town. Uh, a lot of people assume fish. Or there's always those smart Alex who are like, coffee! Like, no. Starbucks yeah. was not around in 1851 and 1852. I know this is a shocking thing to learn. However, shit geysers. Shit geysers, though. That'll wake you up. That'll perk you up. <laughs> who right? needs coffee? Who needs coffee when you have shit geysers? <laughs> there are those that would argue Starbucks coffee tastes like shit geysers. It's a true thing sometimes, you know? Or it leads you to having yeah. shit geysers. Touche. Touche. So, Henry Esler big important guy he came here and uh built a steam-powered sawmill right on the water uh and this was when the hills in seattle anyone who's listening to this and is a local you're probably saying to yourself oh seattle's hills are just the worst thing ever you know nothing john snow <laughs> um, <laughs> the hills used to be much much steeper and they were steep enough that what they could do is is cut logs down way, way up on the hill and actually skid them down the road to get to the water where the sawmill was. So at the time, the street that they used to do this on, they called it Mill Road. But as, you know, all things, particularly when you got a bunch of lumbermen who were just hanging out making bad jokes, they started to call it Skid Road as a result of them skidding all of these logs down the road. Uh, and it was the very first skid road in the United States, in Seattle. Never knew that. Yeah. It's Never also just, you're like, yay. Yay, we have a skid road too. We have it, yeah. <laughs> Look at that. Not us. just in Los Angeles. No. Totally uh, different. Totally different. And, and it kind of developed this reputation of being anything south of skid road was an area you didn't want to be in. Uh, this road is now, for again, those of you who are in the know of the uh, uh, geography of, of Pioneer Square specifically, is now Yesler Way. Uh, so, in 1856, at this point in time, we'd been settled here for a couple of years. And our relations with the local tribes, not super awesome for the most part. Uh, we did and had made friends with Chief Seattle, and he ended up being kind of a crucial point. Uh, a number of the tribes got together and said, we're kind of sick of this shit. You know, we, we came here and took over the land, <laughs> as, as, as we do. Pocahontas part two. Pocahontas part two. <laughs> um, and, and that led to a lot of skirmishes back and forth. Uh, and ultimately the tribes were like, again, we're, we're done with this. And so they got together to attack the settlement. But we were warned about the attack by Chief Seattle. Uh, and so on January 26th, as the tribes were advancing to attack, they pulled everybody back into the settlement and they kept everyone back and they had a warship the Decatur that was docked in Elliott Bay so as the tribes tried to move forward the guns of the warship would keep pushing them back and the battle went on for about 12 hours uh, and ultimately the loss of life on the settler side was two people where on uh, the Native American side it was about 28 with about 80 wounded Yeesh. yeah 
Uh, and this is where, this was kind of a turning point for Pioneer Square because as legend goes, from this battle, a curse was put on Pioneer Square. Uh, and that is one of the reasons why it remains an area that is full of poverty, full of tragedy, uh, that it remains Skid Road and can't seem to get out of that no matter how many efforts are made to revitalize the area. And even to this day, it's a pretty shady place to be after 10 p.m. Like, you really don't want to be there by yourself. I mean, some days after 3 p.m., it's kind of... <laughs> yeah, it's, it's shady no matter what. You really have to keep eyes on the back of your head all the time. But yeah. it's really unfortunate. Like, there's so much homelessness in Seattle in general. Yeah. But a lot of it is hoarded in Pioneer Square. Mm -hmm. And it's really interesting to see that it's happened since the beginning. Yeah. It's kind of crazy. Uh, and so despite any effort, uh, nothing ever really changes. Um, now, all of this time, we're still regularly dealing with shit geysers. We're dealing with uh, <laughs> flooding. The city is slowly growing bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, and we hit, I'd say, probably the biggest turning point in our city was 1889. What happened in 1889? I'll tell you. Okay. So June 6th, uh, an apprentice cabinet maker by the name of John Bach was heating glue on a gasoline stove. Glue boiled over and it caught fire. Uh-oh. Mm-hmm. And of course, being the responsible young man that he was, he grabbed a bucket of water to throw on the chemical fire. Not What smart. could possibly go wrong? Everything. All the things. <laughs> All the things. All the things went wrong at once. And the fire spread. And of course, it spread above to a paint shop. Oh, that's flammable. Mm, a little bit. A little, little bit. bit. A little bit. It spread further to some saloons that were freshly stocked with liquor. Warehouses with ammunition shipments in them. It's like a perfect storm. It was a perfect storm. Uh, and it... The, one of the like fun things I, I had read about when I was first researching all of this was that the, the fire brigade were plugging in their, their hoses to try to stop the fire, but they overwhelmed them. So they had, oh, you know, they had flaccid they had, water, they had flaccid water, flaccid water. That's never a good time. It's never a good time. It's just, yeah, and it's, it's you just, you, you kind of wanted to see if there was sad trombone noises happening with the flat. Uh, it was pretty apparent that the city was going to burn down. <laughs> and the fire burned for about 12 hours and ultimately about 25, 30 city blocks were destroyed, uh, about 120 acres. But we almost immediately decided we wanted to rebuild. And there was this brilliant idea. Hey, you know those shit geysers? Maybe we should do something so we don't have shit geysers. <laughs> I feel like we should rename this episode shit geysers. I think we should. <laughs> Anywho, I also, I, if, for those of you who are now making a drinking game of this, shit geysers. There Take you a go. Shot. Ayo. Uh, 
And also, I mean, flooding. There was a lot of reasons where it seemed to make sense to fix the problems that stemmed from uh, the original settlement. Sure. So the idea was proposed to uh, build a seawall and raise our city up, which seemed like a wonderful idea. However, building a seawall, raising a city, it is not something that happens overnight. It takes a very long time to accomplish this. It took how long? Ten oh, years? Uh, just over 10 years, yeah. And if you are a local merchant, you don't want to be sitting around twiddling your thumbs for that long so that you can reopen your business. Nope. You can't. You can't afford to do that. So local merchants started rebuilding. City built up around them, and they built another first floor on top. And that is uh, what we now know as the Seattle Underground. Uh, now, all of this is leading into the Klondike Gold Rush. Klondike Gold Rush was really the thing that cemented us as the major player in the area for being a major city. It's the largest flux of people we'd ever had through the city. About 70,000 people came through the city in uh, the Gold Rush. And uh, so you also see a lot of, of uh, businesses opening up. Now, right after the Great Seattle Fire, one of the businesses that opened up in 1890 was a place called Merchant's Cafe. That makes sense. That makes sense. Guess what, though? What? It's still around today. It is still around today. You can go there and... I've actually been there. They have really good chicken fingers. I, but you're a vegetarian. I'm a vegetarian. They have good fries. They do have good fries. They have good fries. They have, uh, actually, they, their garden burgers are solid. And uh, they also pour drinks. And that's usually what I have when I go there. Hey. <laughs> I mean, that makes sense. It's a bar. It's a it's bar. It's a bar slash restaurant now. Yeah. But it is the continuously, it's the longest running continuously that's a sentence. Words are hard. Words are very hard. Words are hard. The longest continuously running restaurant in the Pacific Northwest. It also has the privilege of being one of the most haunted places in the city. Uh, there are so many spirits there that even on our tours, we barely begin because we do visit Merchant's Cafe on both our pub tour and our family friendly tour. And we only begin to brush the surface of what happens there. Uh, so whenever possible on our tours, particularly the family-friendly tours, uh, if there's no one in the downstairs area, the restaurant very generously allows us to go inside and take people downstairs to their original first floor so they can get an idea of what it was like. And... There are two specific spirits down there, uh, a little boy and little girl, who were killed in a fire that broke out next door in the 1930s. And I've had more than one uh, interaction with them. Ooh, tell me about it. So... I regularly will go down and either talk to the bartender to see if, if it's opened or if the bartender's busy, I go down to the first floor myself just to take a look and see if there's customers down there. 
And on more than one occasion now, I've gone downstairs, seen that it's empty, and when I went to go back up the stairs, I felt something tug at the upper part of the back of my skirt. So not like my skirt has caught on stairs, but like someone's grabbing my skirt and tugging on it in a similar way to how a small child would try to get your attention. Which there's generally not any small children hanging out no. in the basement of Merchant's Cafe. And of course, when I turn around, there's nobody there. There's no one there. So this was uh, two summers ago now. I had a tour with a little boy. A little boy was, he was pretty young. Wait, he was alive though, right? He was alive, yes. Oh, okay, got yes. It. Unless his sure. parents were pulling like some six cents shit on me. Which you know, you never know these days. You never know these days. Uh, so he was five or six, I would say. And he was super stoked. He was, I mean, he was like what I presume we were like as children. We're oh, like, for sure. This stuff didn't scare you. You were just like, yes. You're like, ghosts. Give Yay. me more ghosts. Uh, so we were the first two down the stairs because he stayed up with me the whole tour. And we were the first two around the corner into the, the main room down there. And he immediately looked over into the far corner and commented, who's the little girl? And I, of course, see nothing. <laughs> so I'm just like, what? <laughs> I wish we could document Kim's facial expression right now, but this is audio, <laughs> so we can't. But it's a very, like, open jaw drop, like Sebastian from The Little Mermaid. And that is the face I made at him. Oh, good. Because it, it, I mean, not a whole lot throws me these days. Sure. But every time a kid goes, I see dead people, I'm just like, okay, shut her down. Six cents in real life. Six cents in real life. And he, he said, yeah, she's, she's wearing a weird dress. Did you ask him like what kind of dress she was wearing? I, I did. I tried to get some details from him. I mean, in that elegant way that five and six year old, like, small children have trying to describe somebody it's it was just like she's a girl she's got a dress on it's i don't know it's a dress but it's like a weird dress that's just a dude that's like a dude at any age that's not just like small dudes or children dudes that's like current dudes that's current dudes yeah well and what was what was interesting is i mean again at this point this was before i told any of the stories uh for that particular location and so he would have had no way of knowing that there was the spirit of, of two children down there. And what, and the fact that specifically one of them was a girl. That's wild. Uh, and no one else who came in saw anything. And he, of course, he was the only child on the tour at that point as well. And we, we are more likely to have sightings if we have children on the tour. That makes sense. But he was so adamant he saw a girl there. And... It's it's been really interesting to me because, you know, there there's so many spirits at Merchants. There's just so many. Um, but the two children specifically are ones that I've had the experience of them kind of reaching out more often. Interesting. Um, at least in a way where it seems like they're reaching out and wanting to be seen, wanting to be heard, wanting to be acknowledged. Um, and sometimes that's all you have to do. Like if you're in that situation, um, for any listeners out there who have experienced hauntings or mm -hmm. anything that, 
you know, you feel like something's trying to get your attention nine times out of 10, once you acknowledge it, you should be good to go. But, you know, especially with little kids, like they're kind of needy in general. Oh yeah. I feel like as a child's spirit, they're not going to stop bugging you because they're just going to continuously want that attention. And need that attention. And hopefully it's not demonic. I, it doesn't feel that way. Got it. Um, I mean, I, and uh, I have my own personal feelings about demonic haunting, specifically having been (laughs) raised Catholic. There you go. Yep. Uh, and I'm, you know, retired Catholic now, but, um, no, it, it, it's, they've never felt like malicious spirits. Sure. Um, but it, it is worth noting about the underground specifically, because this particular haunting tends to, to not, I mean, it, it doesn't exclusively stay down in the underground, but that does seem to be where the primary activity activity is for this specific set of spirits. Uh, a common misconception about the Seattle undergrounds mm-hmm. is that it is uh, interconnected tunnels. Oh, no. Not no. Shanghai tunnels. Not Shanghai it's tunnels. It's not Portland. It is not Portland. Nope. Uh, it's pockets because as they were building the city up, it's, they built the streets up. So you sure. had these sidewalks down still at sea level. Right. Cause they had ladders that would stretch up from the sidewalks to the, to the street. And then people would fall off those ladders. 17 people are recorded dying, falling from the street down to the sidewalk. Yeah. Hey, there's more death. Cool. So yeah. And they do think, I mean, there are, are some hauntings that could have stemmed from that. Um, a great Seattle fire, no recorded human casualties though. But, uh, as a result, we have these these original first floors that are, I mean, like basements, essentially. Yeah. They're not, but they are right. all at the same time. Well, it's like they kind of look like a basement yeah. until you go toward the edge of the building. Yes. And then you get toward the edge of the, edge of the building. Right. And all of a sudden, you see a window. Yeah. And you're like, why is there a window Why is there a window in a basement? And, and and you get into the sidewalk areas, which are where you have the more kind of, I hate to say tunnels, because again, they're not tunnels, but they're no, these... No, it's just a sidewalk. It literally looks like a sidewalk from above, but below. But below. And you could take a stroll around the block. You could. In that sidewalk. Except uh, you're limited to wherever the street hits. Right, right. But as a result, you have this, this these pockets where there's almost no airflow. Mm. particularly if there's not businesses actively using them or the businesses aren't using this part of the business. Like, uh, you know, the, the spooked area, we are part of the underground. Like we're, our business is on the original first floor. Um, merchants uses their original first floor, but you have a place like the JM cafe, which we also go to on some of our tours and their underground area. They don't currently use except for storage. So it's not super well maintained. Uh, it's a lot creepier to be and down there. there's a lot of like original stuff down there that's really cool. You gotta yeah. check out one of the tours because the tours actually take you through there and you can see everything. It's pretty neat. And it, it's, it gives you a lot better idea of this. But this lack of airflow helps contribute to the high level of paranormal activity. Because you just have this undisturbed energy. Yeah. And so... All of these these factors, you look back over our early history, um, the Curse of Pioneer Square, the Great Seattle Fire, the and Shit Geysers. The Shit Geysers. Take a drink. <laughs> shit Geysers, Shit Geysers, Shit Geysers. I've just summoned 
<laughs> it's like beetle beetle, beetle shit. <laughs> uh, but one possible explanation for why we are an area as haunted as we are, I think, is played out in our history. It totally is. And I think that on top of that, like, I love that you just shared one of your experiences in Merchant's Cafe. I've been to Merchant's Cafe before. It definitely has a spooky vibe to it. Mm -hmm. I haven't done a personal investigation with it. But you guys, I have some really fun information to share with you. Um, I, I just got a, a wing wing, hello, from um, Sir Ross Allison. Ooh. So the gentleman that we were speaking about earlier that's, you know, in charge of all the fun things there at Spooked in Seattle and a Ghost actually said that he would love to chat with us about his personal experience at the Merchant's Cafe. So I'm going to give him a ring right now. Cool. All right, and I have Ross here. Hi, Ross. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for joining us on our podcast today on our first go. Um, I'm really excited to hear about your experience with merchants because I hear you have some secrets that you would like to share. Oh, my. There's, there's quite a bit to share when it comes to merchants. In fact, uh, we're getting ready to uh, launch our first uh, hour-and-a-half event that just features Merchants Cafe. So there's lots of stories to talk about, lots of evidence to be shared. But I'd have to say one of the first things that brought my attention to Merchants Cafe was right after uh, Darcy, who is the current owner, had taken over the place. And the first thing that she shares with me after, you know, we, she knew that we wanted to bring our tours around the area was uh, she had a picture. And in this picture, she had taken a, a photo of a, a painting that was actually in her, um, her business hanging on the wall. In fact, this is a picture that actually came with the business when she had taken over Merchant's Cafe. Now, um, she decided, you know, this picture is just, uh, it's wonderful. She loved the model and the picture. And she thought that maybe it'd be a great idea to have this model be featured on her menus. So she goes to try and take a picture of it. You know, she sets it up on the floor, you know, to get the best angle so she can get a nice, you know, uh, view of it. And every time she kept taking a picture, it ended up, you know, being, um, she kept getting a lot of glare from the flash. So she decides she's going to try and take a picture without the flash. Well, when she does this, she's surprised at what shows up in the photo. What showed up? I'm so curious. <laughs> what showed up was what looks like an artist's studio in the background. I mean, you can see a fainting chair in the background. You can clearly see a dresser, a mirror over the dresser. Uh, you can even see a reflection in the mirror. All these interesting pieces that you'd probably find in an old-time, you know, uh, artist studio, a painter's studio. And she was kind of floored by this. Now, as soon as she brought it to my attention, the first thing, you know, I'm thinking, okay, maybe it was reflection. You know, because that happens when you're taking a picture, you know, off of glass. Right. And, but the first thing I realized is, well, wait a minute, if this is reflection, that means that these pieces have to be inside the bar. They're not. Again, this looks like, you know, a, an artist's room. 
not a, a bar at all. So I, and there's like a ladder and all kinds of interesting things in it. And so I'm kind of curious by this because, you know, I'm trying to study this and figure out, you know, what could it cause this? Now, the first thing that I, was brought to my attention is back in the day, you know, it was uh, very uncom- it was very common for uh, any of the working girls. Well, when I say working girls, you know, when it came to prostitution, ladies of the night, sure. and, and this this bar mm-hmm. was known for being a brothel. There was one floor, I believe it was the third floor, was used as a brothel. Uh, the second floor was just being used as a normal hotel. So a lot of times whenever these uh, saloons and taverns and stuff like that offered those adult services, they would have pictures of their working girls on the, uh, in the bar so that the guys could go up to the bar, look at a picture and say, hey, I'd like to meet her. And of course, they would uh, give you the key to her room and you'd go on up and meet her. So I started to learn all this stuff as I was studying this picture. But I also learned too that um, if a um, to give some of these uh, paintings more of a lifelike look, some of the artists would paint over photos. So they would just you know take a picture of their model standing in their studio, and then of course paint around everything else and give it that more of that lifelike look. Well, I thought okay, well maybe that's the situation. Well, to see through paint. A camera can't do that. No. You know, you have to use an x-ray machine to be able to see through the paint. That's how they know if an artist has used a canvas more than once. So that was kind of interesting. But then I also found out that the picture that is hanging on the wall that's actually framed is a print. So all this didn't make sense. That's crazy. yeah, it's like, why are these things showing up in this picture? And and so it's just one of those mysteries that we uncovered here, you know, at Merchant's Cafe. And a lot of people will go in to Merchant's Cafe and, and take a picture of that. And sometimes even other odd things will show up in the pictures as well. That's crazy. Do you, do you know if there's a place where we could see that photo that has that reflection in it? Uh, it's nothing that's been published, but it is... Uh, some of the tour guides that spooked in Seattle will actually uh, show that photo, especially if you ask them about it. Oh, so we got to go to the tour to see the photo. Uh, and you might be able to <laughs> if you go if you actually go to Merchant's Cafe. Um, some of the bartenders might have access to it. If Darcy's there, she'd be more than happy to share it. And um, I think if um, Tony's there, he might have access to it as nice. well. Awesome! That's so cool. Yeah. That's oh, wild. Yeah. And then did you say that you also uh, experienced like a mass, like you saw a mass at one point? Well, I've had a lot of experiences, um, but uh, one of my other really interesting experiences was um, I was actually, uh, we were doing an investigation and the team, well, there was about four of us on the team. It was uh, myself and one other uh, investigator was with me. I was sitting at a table at the downstairs bar in the in the underground section, and uh, the other guy that was on my team was actually uh, in the kitchen area doing some readings. Now I was just mapping things out, so we weren't you know really getting into the full investigation just yet. 
the other two members were upstairs doing the same thing. They were, you know, taking baseline readings and photos. So it was still pretty early into the investigation. And I happened to look up, and I wanted to get a measurement of the doorway that goes right into the underground bar. And right when I looked up, I saw this little dark figure, what best to be described as maybe a shadow of a, I would probably say, a six-year-old child just standing there. I couldn't make out any details. It was just like a perfect outline of a child. And I was just like, what the hell? And right when I noticed it, and it noticed that I noticed it, it immediately ran behind a column and was never seen again. That's wild. Yeah. That's crazy. Cool. Take our tours. Yeah. I'd love to, to share more stories about those. And I know there are stories that we did not mention um, today that are on the tour. So there's a lot more to share. So if you are interested in checking out the tour, obviously go to Spooked in Seattle. Um, there's a website for it as well. And you can look it up online. And that's a great way to sign up for all of the different tours that we have. Um, but Ross, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Um, we're going to do a little bit more of an in-depth interview with Ross in a separate, um, episode. So stay tuned for more, but thank you so much for your time, Ross. Anytime. Well, that concludes the first episode of A Ghost Stories. Thank you so much, Ross Allison, for your input and interview. And thank you so much, Kim, for your everlasting knowledge as the human A Ghost Encyclopedia. For more information on A Ghost, feel free to check out aghost.org to find out more about our program, as well as spookedinseattle.squarespace.com com to find out any more information on the tours that we offer and the fun things that are spooky. So having said that, thanks again. Have a lovely evening and uh, stay spooky, Seattle. <laughs>